Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is God's word. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, shows us a series of case studies of lies that have become great because of suffering, through suffering. And it answers the question, how do you live a life of faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil, uh, turbulence in your life? In verse 27, we see uh, the author writes, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. In other words, he should have been afraid. He should have feared. Uh, He was the prince of Egypt, and he had left, and yet he wasn't afraid. He didn't fear. Why? He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. He saw reality beneath the, the visible reality. In verse 28, we read that by faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Why? Because he anticipated the destroyer, the destroyer of the firstborn. And he believed that this destroyer would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, he saw. He saw a reality underneath the visible reality, and it shaped him. In verse 29, we read, by faith, the people of Israel, they crossed the Red Sea. In other words, they escaped. They were rescued. And it's these three verses, it captures really the entire account of Moses. It captures the entire life, the account of Moses. We're going to see the background. I've got to give you a background. And then we're going to see some lessons that come out of this, uh, some brief lessons that come out of this that we can apply. First, the background. <clears throat> God made a covenant way back in the book of Genesis. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he promised him land and a son, numerous descendants. And uh, by the end of uh, the book of Genesis, we see that the Israelites, they, uh, they were the descendants of Abraham. They settled in the land of Egypt. But they had grown so great, so numerous, that the king of Egypt, known as the Pharaoh, he had stripped them of, the, of their citizenship. He had stripped them of their rights, their privileges. He oppressed them and enslaved them. He was incredibly cruel to them. And at one point, even though he failed to do this, at one point, he tried to systematically destroy, uh, destroy them by ordering the death of all the newborn males of, of the Israelites. This way, the Israelites would lack manpower if they ever wanted to rise up as an army. Uh, but it also was a way... Um, Uh, for the females that were left, that remained, they would eventually marry into the Egyptian culture. And they failed. They tried to get the Israelites to lose their identity as a people. Uh, They tried to, they failed essentially. But it was a violent time for God's people. It was an evil time for Israel. But here you have Moses. He was born a Hebrew And through a series of circumstances, he becomes a prince in Egypt. He becomes a prince. But he leaves his status behind. He leaves his wealth, his education, the Egyptians behind, really because of an act of pride. And he basically goes into a a world of wilderness 
for decades. But in the wilderness, God meets Moses. He encounters Moses. And he tells him to return to Egypt. And he says in Exodus chapter 4, he says, Israel is my firstborn. Israel is my firstborn son. I want you to go to the Pharaoh and tell them to let my son go so that they may come and worship me. Now, remember, in ancient times, all your wealth, if you had a family, all your wealth, all your status, everything that you had, your inheritance would go to the firstborn son. And uh, so your firstborn son got the love, got the doting. Your pride was in your firstborn son. Your firstborn son got the love. He was treasured. And God says, Israel is my firstborn son. How would you like it if somebody in your family, how would you like it if somebody takes your firstborn son and oppresses him? How would you like it if somebody takes your son, your firstborn son, and assaults him? He says, to assault my firstborn son, that's an assault on my family. That's an assault on my wealth, my status, everything that I have. You'd say, I want justice for this. That's me. I want you to let my firstborn son go. Let him go. Set him free. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. He wouldn't let him go. And God, initially, he's gracious. God is gracious. He sends nine plagues on Israel to wake the Pharaoh up. The people around Pharaoh eventually turn. Even, you see them slowly shifting towards God, his word, his command. But, and what were the point of the, the whole point of the plagues was to show that what Pharaoh is doing, he's going against what is natural, the natural order that God had created. And so what God is showing is to go against God, is to bring natural chaos in your life, natural corrosion in your life. So he sends these nine plagues, but nothing happens. Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so finally, in Exodus chapter 11, he sends this message. Because you will not let my firstborn son go, because you will not let him go, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a destroyer. And this, I, I myself will go throughout Egypt. And every firstborn son in Egypt from the son of the pharaoh to the son of the slave girl, even the firstborn of the cattle, everyone will die. He says there will be such wailing in Egypt as never have been heard before and never again. That is my justice. All the other plagues, all the other plagues, they were just warnings. They weren't necessarily justice. They were actually an act of grace. But on this day, God will bring his judgment. That's what he says. I will bring my judgment. And he says that the Israelites will receive it too unless they do something. What were they asked to do? In Exodus chapter 12, he says, you have to keep the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. That's what the Hebrews author is writing in chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. He says, if you keep the sprinkling of blood, if you keep the Passover, my justice is going to pass over. My justice is going to pass by. And you're going to be saved. Not because you are Jews. Because as you read Exodus chapter 12, it seems like what God is saying is because you are Jews, I will, the Jews will be saved and the Egyptians will not be saved. That's what it reads. That's how initially you read it. But it's not necessarily because you are Jews. The Jews are not exempt. It's very, very clear. The Jews are called to take shelter. He says everybody needs shelter. 
And you see this throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis, Abel has to make a sacrifice. Enoch has to walk with God. The sacrifice was the shelter. Walking with God, God himself was the shelter. Noah, built for years, builds an ark. Abraham sacrifices a ram. Everyone had to take shelter. Sin, you see a definition of sin here. Sin is what? To reject the shelter. To run from the shelter. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? What where did they hide? They covered themselves. They took shelter on their own. They hid in a bush. That's what happened. You need a shelter. From the beginning, you needed a shelter. Every firstborn that didn't have a shelter would die. God says, you're going to oppress my firstborn? You're going to make an assault on my firstborn? Then you're oppressing me. You're oppressing my glory. You're assaulting my treasure. And here's the justice that you're going to deserve. Well, the Egyptians eventually let them go, and the Israelites go out. And that's what you see in verse 29. The Israelites, they go out, they leave Egypt, and you see from Exodus chapter 1 through 14, Exodus chapter 14, God says, I want you, at the end, they cross over the Red Sea, God saves them, God redeems the Israelites, and he says, I want you to observe the Passover every year. I want you to practice the consumption of the lamb. I want you to take shelter. I want you to practice taking shelter in a visible way, in a palpable way every year. I want you to experience this renewal every year. A Christian says, the Christian says, just as the Israelites crossed over from the land of slavery to the land of freedom, from death to life, so have I by taking shelter in the blood of the land that has been spilled. Because of the death of the Lamb, Israel was spared. Because of the death of the Lamb, Israel escaped. In the same way, a Christian says, I have taken shelter by the blood of the Lamb that was spilt. And so I have been spared. I have escaped. I've crossed over from slavery, ultimate slavery to freedom. I've crossed over from death to life. God has carried me over from death to life. What are the lessons? Because these lessons... They're going to teach us the problems of sin, a life of sin, which is slavery, and the solution to sin, which is a life of freedom. First, we're going to go into a series of lessons on the problems of sin. One, one of the problems of sin is that it's universal. It's egalitarian. Sin doesn't pick and choose who is a sinner. We're all sinners. Moses taught this. He teaches that the destroyer is the justice of God. And when he comes, if you do not take shelter under the spilled blood of the lamb, we're all going to die. You're going to die. God didn't save the Jews simply because they were Jews. He didn't kill the firstborn in Egypt simply because they were Egyptians. In other words, it doesn't depend on your culture. It doesn't depend on your ethnicity. Salvation doesn't depend on what family upbringing you have, nor what status, nor what kind of wealth. None of those things save you. It doesn't matter what school you went to, whether you went to a Christian school or had a secular education, it doesn't matter. None of those things will save you. It doesn't matter what kind of manners you were brought up in. It doesn't matter if you were born in the church, raised in the church or not. Everyone is subject to the justice of God. And, that's the bad news, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved because it doesn't depend on culture. It doesn't depend on ethnicity, nor your family, nor your status, nor what kind of education you've been brought up in, nor what kind of manners you were brought up in. 
nor your wealth. It's not dependent on your works. God's people were made distinct because of the spilt blood of the Lamb. That's how we can be set apart, because of the spilt blood of the Lamb. The second thing we learn about sin is that sin requires payment. Sin requires payment. Abraham understood this. Abraham understood and he obeyed when God asked him to offer up Isaac. We see this earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. God had asked Abraham to offer up his son, his only son. Why? Abraham understood. You don't see him complaining. In the actual narrative in the book of Genesis, he doesn't complain because he understood that we all owe a sin debt to God. All of our lives, all of our lives, as we are beheld as God's treasure in our sin, think about this. If you are beheld as God's treasure and you, be, and you grieve, imagine somebody that you absolutely love and you're loved by and you go against that person. Essentially, you've betrayed that person. You've damaged that person. You've hurt that person. That's why Abraham understood that. Abraham understood. He didn't complain when God says, I want you to offer up your son, Isaac. He didn't complain because he understood that he himself owed a sin debt. He himself, beheld as God's treasure, had betrayed his father, betrayed his, his God, hurt and grieved God. And he knew that God is just. And that God, by asking him to offer up a sin debt, was really claiming his debt. He's claiming it back. Isaac was his son. Isaac is the son of promise, but Isaac himself is a sinner. And Abraham is a sinner, and God is just. And so if anything, there was a question of, perhaps this is how God would fulfill the promise. Perhaps this is how God would redeem the sin debt that's going to make good for the rest of the world. Because God promised Abraham that this son would redeem the world. That through one of Abraham's descendants, this debt would be paid. That the world could be redeemed. Now, on the way up the mountain, Isaac asked, Isaac, his own son, asked, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide a lamb. God's going to make a way. Because Abraham trusted that God would make a way. He trusted God would provide something to die in his place. That's Genesis. Now here we are at the Passover. Israel is commanded to really practice this provision. Israel as a whole knew that they owed a sin debt and that God was reminding them to practice the provision of the lamb, the blood of the lamb being spilt. That this is the justice of God and it also represents the mercy of God. If the lamb dies, you get to be saved. If the lamb dies, you are redeemed. It's called atonement. This lamb, its blood being spilled is being spilled in your place. This lamb dying is dying in your place because the lamb's blood is being spilled and because God is just, the sin debt is being paid and you are redeemed. You are justified by the blood of the lamb. You see that? It comes down to what you trust. It comes down to what you trust. Because if you, if you trust in the strength of your culture, if you trust in your family upbringing, 
if you trust in your status, your works, your accomplishments, your wealth, you're going to die. Why? Because if you really think about it, most of the major problems in our lives, they're not solved by your culture, they're not solved by your family, nor your status, nor your education, nor your wealth. You can, you, you can try to solve, uh, if you think about this, can money, can your wealth solve the deepest physical and psychological problems in your life? Has money ever solved any of those problems? Can education, can having the right education, whatever that means, by the way, but can having the right education solve any problem in your marriage? If you see that God's justice is for you on one hand and God's justice is against you on the other hand, then you can embrace the love of God. You can embrace God's mercy by the blood of the Lamb being spilled for you. You see, do you get that? At the Passover... At the Passover, the disciples are gathered with Jesus, and there was bread, which he says represents his body. There was wine, which represented his blood. Spilled for us. You get that? That's what he says. But where's the lamb? The centerpiece of every Passover meal was the lamb. There was no lamb. Why? It's because Jesus is the lamb. He's the ultimate lamb. His body would be broken. His blood would be spilled. It would be poured and spread on the wood, you see. And it would be done that as a payment to redeem us. Will you take shelter in the blood of the lamb? Because sin is universal. And on the other hand, it requires a payment. What would be your payment? You see, the third thing we see is, you know, with sin, you can't bargain with sin. You just can't bargain with it. There is no such thing as bargaining uh, in your sinfulness. There are people in this room today who are probably just coming back to the church. It hasn't been a while. It's been a, a long time since they've been in the church and are just starting to come back to the church. And they're thinking, well, it's, the reason why it's taking me so long to come back in some ways is I need to get back in spiritual shape. I need to kind of work out a little bit before I start to serve, before I start to connect. And really what they're saying is I need to become more moral in my life. You're not taking shelter, you see. You're not taking shelter. You're still trusting in your own works to save you. You're still trusting in your own goodness to save you. Here's the bad news. If that's what you believe, you're dead. That's the bad news. That's pretty bad news. If that's what you believe, you're as good as dead. And that death is going to start to cycle in your life, occur over and over in your life, it's going to result in your trying, and it's going to result in your working. You're still in slavery. You're trying hard. You're slaving away, you see. And it's going to plague you, and it's going to create anxiety in your life, and it's going to create burdens in your life. How you look in front of, your, uh, in front of other people, that's going to matter more to you today, tomorrow, than it will even today. And it's going to cycle in your life, and the corrosion, and the anxieties, and the worries, you see. And that, as you go on in life, let me tell you, I think I'm older than most of you, right? Let me tell you, if you let that cycle on in your life, it's going to create a, a corrosion, a deterioration. That gets, it just gets harder and harder to fight against because it's so deeply ingrained in your psyche, and then it's going to play out in your children. It's going to play out in your relationship to your spouse. It just continues to spread. Entropy, it's that deterioration just continues to grow, you see. It's going to plague you. It's going to plague your family. It's going to corrode and destroy you. That's the bad news. 
before you even die, the ultimate death, you see, that death is going to play itself out over and over and over in your life. Now, the good news is it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. In John chapter 8, you have this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And people are, everybody's ready to stone her. Because the law says that requires justice. In those days, you could get stoned for committing adultery if you're caught in the act of adultery. But when she encounters Jesus Christ, everybody walks away. Everybody walks away. And Jesus asks her, woman, has anyone condemned you? And she answers, no one. No one's condemned me. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Notice, he doesn't say, leave your life of sin, then you can go. He says, go. You are free. Now you can leave your, your life of sin. Go, and now you can leave your life of sin. You see that? We say, oh, but I have deep secrets. I have dark secrets, things I haven't shared with anybody in my life. Let me ask you this. Is it deeper than the darkness of hell? Is it darker than the darkness of hell? Jesus Christ suffered hell to go there for you. There's an anecdote, and I don't know where I read this anecdote. I don't know where I heard this anecdote. Um, definitely, I've definitely heard it many times. Um, prominent Presbyterian, Jack Miller, um, he used to minister uh, at, a, at a large church in Glenside, uh, not too far from actually where I live. Uh, and Jack Miller, um, he used to frequent uh, places where a lot of people he was trying to draw into the church. He would go to a bar, talk to people sitting in these bars, invite them to church, and he would sit with them, and they would pour out their lives, and they would tell him, I don't even know if I'm telling the story right because so many people have told it, um, but uh, there was one person in particular who was basically pouring out his life and said, I've got to shape myself up. I'm not really ready to come back to the church because I lived a terrible life. And he starts telling him, confessing all these things to him and saying, I'm not really ready to come back to the church because I'm, I'm a mess. And Jack Miller, this old Orthodox Presbyterian man, says, well, cheer up because you're actually worse than that, you see. But we say, but I need to become wiser. I need more faith in my life. Look, you got to think about this. Real wisdom and real faith says this, I get it. I just need enough wisdom to look to the cross where Jesus' blood has been spilled for me. My eyes need to be just good enough to be able to see, you see. The Spirit gives me eyes, just enough wisdom, just enough faith to be able to see Jesus' blood spilled for me. That's the only wisdom you need. That's sufficient wisdom. Friends, this is the end, first of all, of snobbiness in the church. This is the end of jealousy in the church. This is the end of envy in the church. Every church has social classes in some ways. It's a terrible thing. But this is the end of those social classes because there's no more comparisons. Some of us, we feel guilty and we're paying the price right now for sins that we've committed way in the past or maybe not too much in the past, you see? And some of these things have resulted in terrible consequences. 
Maybe you've lost relationships in your life. Maybe there's brokenness that's constantly uh, perpetuating in guilt and shame in your life. Maybe it's resulted in justice, like civil justice in your life, and you're still recovering from that. Maybe it's resulted in church justice. Every church has justice, right? Maybe it's resulted in that. And all those things are probably necessary. All those things in some ways are good things, but it doesn't mean ultimate justice for you. Your life is not over. It does not mean ultimate justice. Your own goodness is not sufficient shelter. It's weird because I'm telling you about grace and I'm like pointing. Your, your own goodness is not sufficient shelter in your life. Your failures are not what it ultimately exposes you in your life. Sin is much more complicated than that. It's much more nuanced than that. But you need adequate shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Now, there are people in this room. Look, this is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a big city. It's got a lot of press over the years. Um, A lot of us, we want to come into the city. We want to live in the city. We worked hard to get where we are. We've performed well. Very type A, straight-laced people from a career standpoint. We're working very hard. We're looking for that perfect opportunity, and we're trying to get ourselves out there. We're saying, I've performed. I've worked hard. I stepped over people. I've leapfrogged over certain people to get there. I've done the dance, and I need to continue building my life, building my life, my family, my dreams. It's easy to look down on other people when you've done that, especially when you have performed. It's easy to look down on people who have not. It's easy to look down on people who have failed when you are a success. Or even if you're not a a global success, in your small successes. Maybe in, in small ways. People who are not doing as well at building. You know what you're doing? You're still putting too much faith in your blood being spilled. You see that? You're putting too much uh, faith in your sweat that is poured out. Like blood. You're putting too much faith in your works, your tears, your suffering, your blood. Do you get that? This is the end of classism. This is the end of racism. This is the end of sexism. You know why? Because every one of us, sin is universal. Every one of us deserves judgment. And the only way we can be redeemed is if we receive mercy, if we receive grace. You can't bargain with the destroyer. The destroyer, Moses said, the destroyer is coming. There's no way you can sit there and bargain with the destroyer. The only way that you can be redeemed is by the spilled blood of the lamb. It's about whose blood is being spilled. It's either your blood or the blood of the lamb. What do you trust? What's the solution to sin? Jesus Christ's death Now, I'm going to get a little bit theological with this here. I try not to do that in terms of really getting technical and theological, but I'm going to to share a few things here. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God, satisfied the justice of God, satisfied the penalty of our sins. Why does that even matter? Why do we need atonement in the first place? Why do we need any kind of payment at all? Why can't we just have a loving God that's just, that's just willing to let it go? I mean, if he loves us, I believe in a God. You know, there are people who say today, I believe in a God that just loves. Loves. I mean, you know, wiser than Santa Claus, but he's just willing to love. Why can't God just let it go and give gifts to us? Now, think about this. When the destroyer came, he never entered into a house where the blood was spilled on the doorposts. Why did he do that? 
It's because God is just. God is a just God. And so if the blood of the lamb was spilled, he's not going to make you pay twice. He's not going to make you pay twice for the sins that you've committed. The lamb had already paid the price, you see. He's just. And that way he's good. That justice is a good justice. It's very important. We need to understand it. It's very important because if you've ever been wronged in your life by somebody that you love, somebody that you really, really love, a very, very close friend of yours, if you've ever been betrayed by somebody that you really love, you'd understand that you can't just let sin go. You can't just let the wrongdoing go because inherently when somebody wrongs you, there is a debt. There is a debt that has been accrued. Some sort of, you almost feel like that person owes you, that there's some sort of sin debt that has to be paid. So your retaliation, the desire to retaliate, right, what you're saying is their blood has to be spilt in order for my wrath to be satisfied. Now, if that's how we feel in our human selves, think about it. If you've ever been wronged by your spouse, your blood boils, right? The closer they are, the more your blood boils. Your blood just boils. You know why? Because you love them. And that, that anger, that wrath is commensurate with how much you love them and how much they love you, right? And so the, your blood just absolutely boils. And what you say is either that person's blood's going to be spilled or my blood's going to be spilled. What do I mean by that? I, what you're saying is either I can pour out my justice because I was wronged. So I can be just and just take it out on that person. Then I'm satisfied. Or I can hold it in and forgive and not exact any justice, then my blood is being spilt again. Either way, you're going to pay. Somebody's going to pay, right? Either that person's going to pay or you're going to pay. If you let that person go, it's your blood, right? It almost feels like an injustice. If God just lets sin go, I mean, if that's how it is, For us who are finite creatures, imagine an infinite God enduring infinite pain, infinite betrayal because of our sins. You can't just, if God is truly loving, if God truly loves you, if his relationship with you is such that he truly loves you in a sincere way, in a genuine way, he can't just let it go. The nature of the relationship, he can't just let it go. Think about all the injustices. If God were to let it go, if God were to even let one injustice go, then injustice wins, right? If God were to let one evil go, then evil wins. A truly loving God, if God really loves you, if God really loves you, that one thing that perhaps no one has seen, that one injustice that has been done against you, does not God see that? If you were to let it go, then it wins then injustice wins, you see. A truly loving God cannot do that. Parents, think about this. If you're a parent, if you see your child hurt badly, do you just let it go? A bully comes, hurts your child. Do you just let it go? There's no way. No loving parent. If you love your child, you wouldn't let it go. I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was in seminary, when I was studying, there was one class that we had. In the middle of the class, uh, one of my classmates, still remember very vividly, he comes in late. And he came in really late. I'm talking, it was a three-hour cohort class. He came in like an hour and a half late. And he was disheveled, and he was, we- he was, like, he was like angry. He was like puffing when he came in. So it was so bad that it, our class stopped. 
And our professor asked him, what's wrong? It was so, so visible. And he said, guys, I just have to say this. And he was cursing in our class. And he stopped and he said, my child today was bullied by two girls. My daughter was bullied by two girls. And I could not just sit there. So I went there and I grabbed these girls and I felt like choking these girls. And I rescued my daughter and she was beaten up and she was bloody and she was wailing. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, what kind of evil can allow for this? What kind of God could allow for this at this point in time? To let this kind of evil go. How can I just let it go? He said, I just sheltered my daughter and I brought her home. And then I was late for class, so I'm here. And he was crying and he was wailing. Came in, he was so angry. You know, it stopped our class. No loving parent can just let it go, you see. Can just let evil go. Blood has to be spilled. There has to be justice. There has to be fire. There has to be darkness. The history of Israel addresses this. Every year, a Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? Every year, the high priest performs two rituals. Two rituals, rightfully, every year. One, what he does is he enters into the most holy place of the temple. And I, I'm going to just summarize this very quickly. And there's a sprinkling of blood that takes place after a purification, after a cleansing ritual. He goes and he sprinkles, he, he, he slaughters uh, the animal, and then he, and he sprinkles blood. And what that does, the reason why he's doing that is what he's saying is, I'm going to pay, the, the Lord has made a way to pay, provisionally, to pay for the penalty of the sins of the people. The second thing he does is the high priest takes a goat and he places his hand on the goat and that represents the transfer of all the guilt of the people, the sins of the people. And then he casts that goat out of the city and that goat, taking the sins of the people, the goat is cast off and pretty much left for dead in the wilderness. That's what happens. He casts out of the city. And so you have atonement and you have an act of atonement and you have an act of taking away the sins of the people into the wilderness. You have this act of the sprinkling of the blood, right? You have this act, the atonement sacrifice. And then you have this act of the taking away of the sins of the people into the wilderness. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist encounters Jesus for the first time. What does he say? He says, behold, I see, I get it. Behold, the Lamb of God, the sprinkling of the blood, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Before me stands, and I see it, I get it now. All of history in the Bible pointed to him. I see the man whose blood will be sprinkled, and I see the one who will take away the sins of the world, the scapegoat who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God. He makes the atoning sacrifice for the people, and he endures the curse of sin in the wilderness. The curse, the sins of of God's people will be placed on him. What's going to happen on the cross? What happens? You see another darkness, another deep darkness. There was literally a darkness on the cross. You see another wilderness. Jesus Christ was literally crucified, not in the city, but outside the city. There the destroyer comes. The justice of God and the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus Christ. Enters in, the destroyer enters in. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of God, right? Not in a legal way, the way, uh, uh, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob saw the firstborn. Not like in a primogeniture way. 
Jesus Christ was the firstborn because of the way the Father doted on him, the way the Father loved the Son. Heaven opened up, and God said, this is my Son who I'm doting on, who I love, who I treasure, who I cherish. That's perfect intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. You want to see a picture of perfect intimacy, a perfect relationship between God's child, who we were intended to be, and the Father who God is? Look at the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father. The joy of the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. The love between God the Father and God the Son. You see, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, when he was on the cross, all you saw was darkness. And he was out of the city. He was a scapegoat. He was out of the city. He was in the wilderness. And there on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, as the atoning sacrifice, as the lamb whose blood was being spilled, as the scapegoat, he's saying, I'm cast down, I'm forsaken, I'm left for dead, I've sent, sent out, not just sent out of the city, not just sent out and rejected by men, I've been forsaken and rejected by God. As God's only begotten son, my blood has been spilt and I've received a destroyer. You know, there are two kinds of suffering that he suffered here. Yes, on one hand, there was the physical suffering and the rejection, the earthly rejection that he endured. There were the thorns, there were the nails, there was a spear. And I don't want to make light of that. There was incredible suffering. The blood is being poured out. And he felt all of it. And he felt all of it for a long time. And in the rejection of men and the hurling, the insults, he endured all that. But the other suffering, the ultimate suffering was when the destroyer came. You need to know this, or else you're never going to understand truly the love of the Father for you and the love of the Son in his suffering on the cross. Because the physical suffering was bad. It was really bad. But it was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he was enduring on the cross. The physical suffering was unjust because Jesus was innocent. He was falsely accused. But the real suffering, the, true, the real Injustice was the sins of the world being placed on him and the wrath of God being poured out on him. That was the ultimate wilderness of this ultimate scapegoat, you see. This is the atoning sacrifice, the true scapegoat, God's suffering servant, prophesied in Isaiah, prophesied in the Old Testament, all rolled up in one, you see. Jesus Christ, here's a theological term, was the propitiation and the expiation sacrifice, you see. And he did it. That means that he was the atonement sacrifice and the one who would take away the sins of the world. And he did this because of his love for us. Jesus Christ took on the darkness and the destroyer that we deserved, that we deserved. He was forsaken with a forsakenness that we deserved so that we could receive the intimacy, the doting, the love, the grace, the satisfaction of God that Jesus Christ deserved. That, friends, that is the ultimate injustice. That is the cosmic injustice. The glory of God's mercy is not that he devours justice because that would be unjust right? Just letting it go. Oh, my mercy just devours justice. The glory of God's mercy is that he's satisfied. He's satisfied. He satisfied his justice with his mercy, you see. 
God didn't just let sin go. He made a way through Jesus Christ to satisfy his own justice. Look at the justice of God on one hand. Look at the mercy of God on the other hand. Look at the provision of God in Jesus. I mean, does Jesus not look more beautiful now? Is Jesus not beautiful? Do you see the love of Jesus in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the work of Jesus on the cross? Do you see that? Look at the character of Jesus. Because he didn't do it grumbling. He didn't do it complaining. Isaiah 53 says he was satisfied in doing it. That means he was glad to do it. That's what Abraham looked to when he saw the ram stuck in a thicket. He saw the provision of God. Someone hurts you, and if you were to just let it go, that makes you merciful, right? That makes you merciful, but it doesn't make you just. It doesn't make you just. Abraham knew that he needed God to be merciful or else he would die on one hand. But we also need a God who is just, you see. And so he must die. How do you bring those things together? The lamb. The lamb of God whose blood would be spilled. God's mercy is loving because it is just. But his justice is loving because it is merciful, you see. His mercy pays for the justice. No other God. There's no other God like that. There's no other God like that. First of all, there's no other God who suffers for his people. Do the research. Go and look in any other religion. You will never find any other God. You will find no other God that is willing to sacrifice out of love for his people. Think about any other God that you serve today. Wealth, approval, relational intimacy, right? Think about that. Family, These days, we idolize our children. We make idols out of our children, idols out of family, idols out of comfort. They're very powerful gods, very powerful gods. They rule our city. They make you work hard. They bring you to slavery. They make you work very, very hard to pay because if you pay, if you pay, it's going to promise to provide in some way. It's a false promise, but it's going to promise to provide in some way. And if you succeed, in a way, you're getting justice because you get some things out of it. But if you fail, if you fail, and we all fail on some level, some degree, that God is never merciful. So either you receive what is due you, and that's justice, but you'll never receive mercy from these gods. You will never receive mercy from these gods. So life is always punishing, always fatiguing, always disappointing. Now, some of you, why do you come? Think about why we come to church. Because we often think that God is like that. We think God is like that. And so uh, you feel that if you pay the price, He will provide. But that's why we're so disappointed in God. Because we're not getting our way, we're not getting our due, and God is not answering our prayers. And when we fail, we feel punished and we feel overworked. But you know, the true God of the Bible never overworks us. We say, I've worked so hard. I'm. You're serving the wrong God. I'm telling you right now. You're serving the wrong God, not the God of the Bible. And you're paying a price for that. Look to the true God of the Bible. He is merciful, and he is loving, and he is gracious, and he is just. 
and he's doting on you and he's treasuring you. You want proof? Look at the cross. That's how you see how much. My last lesson on this, it's an exhortation to you. All you do, what must I do? You just behold. Like John the Baptist beheld Jesus, you just behold. Like the way Moses saw he who was invisible, you have to see. Just behold. If you don't trust, all of life is going to be distorted because you're never going to have a God that says, uh, you know, you're never going to have a God in your life. If you don't trust, you're never going to have a God that says you're living wrong. You're never going to have a God that questions you. You're never going to have a God that challenges you. You're never going to have a God that says, no, you're not doing what I want of you. You're living wrong. There are boundaries. You're not in obedience. If you never have a God like that, life is going to be very disoriented. It's going to be very directionless. You're going to be very confused. Things are not going to make sense. You're going to be very inconsistent in your life. Israel wandered for decades and decades, even after they escaped from Egypt, you see. You know why? Because they just didn't want to trust God. They were alienated from God. Even after being saved by the Father, they were alienated relationally from Him. And there's nothing, there's nothing more lonely than that. Remember Jesus on the cross. Lonely. Forsaken. So that you could be brought in. Do you see that? You're never going to grow otherwise. Uh, You're always going to feel guilty. You're always going to be driven by your anxieties, you see. Your prayers are mainly going to be about your anxieties and the things that you want. That's how you know. That's the litmus test for how you know. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God on the cross who satisfied the justice of God and mercy of God. That's where mercy, the cross is where the mercy of God and the justice of God embrace. So behold. It doesn't take any work to behold. It doesn't take any work to really see. Right? Just open your eyes, you see. Right? Behold the love of God. The mercy of God. That's, how, that's what it means to get it. Behold the beauty of God. The love of God. The mercy of God. And the justice of God. All in Christ. And when you say amen, I get it. That's what it means to behold, okay? To behold is to observe the Passover. It doesn't take any work. You just have to see. There's no works involved. You receive by faith alone. You see the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb of God, spilt, sprinkled for you. That's what it means to behold the reality underneath the visible reality to live by faith, to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. We're going to practice that as an act of renewing our covenant with God today through uh, this great meal in front of us. Okay? Let's pray together.